You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible. We talk about it and uh, try to figure out what's going on with it. Uh, it's been a it's been a long time in the making, I guess. <laughs> just a little bit, you know, just a few millennia or something. Uh, oh, for us, you know, a little bit, but. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a conversation. Yeah, I was kind of going with this a conversation that we've kind of been having since we were children, really. Um, and you're just getting a tune in every now and again when we happen to, to record. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's it. That is the thing. We talk about the stuff even when we're not recording, which is probably actually when we're not recording, it's probably more interesting than what we do record because we're behaving ourselves. Well, it, not just that we're trying to make it make a little more sense when we talk about it. You know, like we, we have conversations and we kind of have like various shorthand for things. Um, that's that the problem with being siblings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you just kind of develop, you know, when you live with someone for eighteen years or six, mm-hmm. I don't know, however many years, whatever, uh, <laughs> a significant amount of time. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's it just takes a little more work to make it make sense to everyone outside. Thus, the outlines and the notes. Yeah, yeah, which is probably beneficial because when we do talk without outlines and notes, the conversation goes everywhere, sometimes with the outlines and notes. So, yeah, yeah. as many of you have probably heard. So, well, that being said, uh, I guess we should get to the Bible. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. And so we're still in Second Samuel. Uh, we're in chapter 24. We're laying out the basic story, and we're going to talk about how it plays off the story in Second Samuel 21 because it is a chiasm. It does. The, the two stories are linked in the structure. And so we want to look at that. But first, we got to get through the particulars within the story so we can get to the chiasm and how they play. And so we had talked last week about some of the uh, contradictions in this particular section in chapter 24 with First Chronicles chapter 21 and how, you know, this is one of those, aha, look, the Bible has, a, has an error. It has a mistake. You can't trust it. Uh, things that critics like to use uh, specifically in regard to uh, Samuel saying that God incited or the Lord had incited David to take the census. And then in First Chronicles, it says a Satan has incited David. And we also discussed how your Bible may not say a Satan or an adversary. It will, might say Satan as if it's a proper name, sure. which is an incorrect translation. And uh, most scholars are going to agree with me. Um, you know, that's not just me saying that. So um, anyway, in verse 13, I think we may have talked about some of this last week, but I think we kind of get a running start before we jump in. So we're going to look at verse 13, and it says, Each one who is numbered in the census, oh, sorry, this is an exodus, um, shall give a half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So Exodus gave us this this outline of what a census should look like. And in Samuel and in Chronicles, we don't have any mention of whether or not David had actually followed this outline. And people think this might have been what David did wrong, because we talked about last week, a census in and of itself is not a sin. Uh, You know, the whole book of Numbers is about taking the right census. And, you know, there's different ones. What's the plural of census anyway? Uh, Censuses. But yeah, so you because know, numbers has you know the census of the Levites, there's the census of various tribes and warriors, and so you know it's not bad, and you aren't going to find a command that says thou shalt not take a, a census. So there, there's some debate on why David feels like he messed up here, and we're going to talk about uh, what some of those possible reasons are, and one of the reasons is that when we looked at First Samuel 20, we talked about how there's this addition when we had David's list of men. Remember, we had a previous list, and then we had the, li- the last list. And in this last list, there's this addition of this guy who is the head of forced labor. And so it's possible that David is taking a census in order to figure out how many people he can force to work on his building projects. Mm-hmm. And this 
this, you know, this is problematic because who does that? Uh, in the Bible, when we think of leaders or kings or rulers causing people to work as slaves on building projects, we aren't looking at the kings of Israel traditionally. And usually our mind goes back to Pharaoh. And so that's a very important uh, little bit of information. And the, the problem on top of that is when you get in that story of the temple and the tabernacle, the people have been released from, from Egypt, they're making their exodus, their wilderness journeys, and it's time to build the tabernacle. We know that people were joyfully and willingly giving and working, you know, whether it was uh, giving their time or their, um, their materials. And matter of fact, at one point, Moses had to say, stop, you're, you're just giving too much. Mm-hmm. And so the, it's the idea that when you work on something that belongs to God, that you do so with a willing heart and that the only people who are allowed to participate are those who are doing it joyfully. And so the idea of forced labor, and you know, we have to think about what David's big building project, what is it that he wants to do? Well, that's to build the temple. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen that previously in the book of Samuel. And so this is problematic from that standpoint if it's correct. Now, the Bible never specifically lays out whether or not it's correct, but there is a few hints that have caused um, different commentators to to think this is the direction uh, that things were going. And by the way, that, that verse there for the forced labor, that was 2 Samuel 20, 24, and his Adoram was in charge of forced labor. But then... Um, we're going to come back to why that might actually make the most sense, but we're going to go back to Second Samuel 24, verse 4. And, um, you know, Joab had stood up against David. He said, no, this is um, not the right thing to do. And David had, you know, basically come back and said, this is what's happening. So in verse 4, it says, but the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So, you know, no big surprise, David wins. Uh, Joab's point is kind of, you know, lost. Um, But there's a good question about why is it included? Why would the writer take time to note that Joab, who isn't always presented in the most favorable light, why is his protest recorded when it actually makes David look worse, Mm -hmm. both here and in Chronicles? Um, So... We're going to hang on to that little tidbit, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Now, in verse 5 through 7, I'm not going to read through that. We got some, um, we have a list of the towns and the way that Joab moved throughout the country to take the census and to get these numbers. And uh, I'm not going to read them, one, because it's a lot of hard names to say, Uh, two, because they really don't mean a lot to us because we don't live there. And so, and there really is, you know, the idea is that Joab did fulfill the command that David gave him, and he fulfilled it thoroughly. Uh, We don't necessarily need to know every particular spot that he stopped. Sure. So, now... Yeah, um, and and just reading lists is, you know, not exactly the most riveting material for podcasts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I think if, you know... Maybe if we live there and it had personal significant significance to us, then we might be a little bit more prone to to go. Oh well, he went here and then he went there, and you know. And when you look at the list in commentaries, what you get is like uh, the ta- name of this town means the name of that town means, and there's like I said, no real theological significance other than just Joab was being thorough. He was doing what he was told to do. So verse eight. So when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem and the end of the nine months and 20 days. Now, what's interesting about that is nine months and 20 days, that's pretty much the, um, the average length of a pregnancy. And yeah. so you have this entire passage of time in which a new life can be created. And, um, but the, the significance of recording this time is that at, David had time to reconsider. During any of that time, he could have said, hey, stop, whoa, I made a mistake, come back home. This wasn't like it was something David said, it was done and over within a matter of even a few days or a few hours. He, is, uh, he had significant time to, to recall Joab. Mm-hmm. So 
In verse 9, we get Joab's reports, and he reports back with the numbers of 800,000 men who drew swords in Israel and 500,000 in um, Judah. Once again, we have a contradiction with Chronicles. Um, the, the numbers in Chronicles is one, uh, 1,100,000 uh, in Israel and four, 470,000 in Israel. And so there's a dozen different theories just to ex explain why this is. Um, some are saying, oh, well, you know, in Samuel, we just get the number of the men. In Chronicles, we get the men, women, and children. Um, some say, well, this doesn't include the numbers in Judah and in Jerusalem itself. And then Chronicles, it does. You know, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, the, the numbers are different. And we just need to accept that. And if you're going to miswrite something when you're copying a, a document, it's probably going to be the numbers. I mean, those are just, I mean, I don't know about you, but this is like the easiest thing for me to, to miss. And yeah, I'm, I'm uh, terrible with numbers. And especially like if I have to say them out loud, I get really messed <laughs> up. There's a, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I just like, I know what I mean and I'll execute the right number. But if you ask me what it was, I'll tell you something completely mm -hmm. uh, not even related. Uh, it's just a random number comes out of my mouth. I, I totally got it. And that's the reason why I'm horrible at, at trying to keep up with numbers. And, you know, and I decided not to look at all the different theories because, you know, any kind of in-depth, because honestly, every single one of them came out, uh, came across to me as just, you know, speculation. It was, you know, like working too hard to justify why there is this discrepancy. And, you know, what's wrong with just saying, hey, you know what, a lot of people, a lot of humans have touched this document and sometimes mistakes happen. Is that really a horrible thing for us to acknowledge? And I know people who have been brought up with the inerrancy theory are just like, oh my gosh, that, that, how could you say such a thing? Look, I don't know anybody who works in translation work who actually believes in the idea of the documents we have today being inerrant. It, it's, you know, yeah. you get that from church leaders, you, you get that from TV yeah. <laughs> preachers. Well, yeah, well, and I, I feel like you made the statement, go ahead and clarify that for us, because uh, you're, uh, there's a lot of people who probably are ready to just turn the show off. <laughs> um, yeah. Just based on that, without understanding what you mean. So go ahead and... and right qualify that if you don't mind yeah well put you on okay. the spot. <laughs> yeah because okay what we have today and and that's what i want to focus on what we have today has survived for thousands and thousands of years and the hebrew text have survived at least you know a little bit longer than the new testament text and so they have been translated by various people and they have been copied by various people and so we understand that human error does occur we have mass printings of Bibles where there's human error in it. So if we want to talk about inerrancy, you know, we would have to go back and start talking about the original manuscripts, the things that the authors of these books actually put their pen to and, and wrote out. And the problem with even considering that option is we don't have those. We don't have those documents. We cannot even begin to have a debate on whether they were inerrant or not because we can't see them. But I'm not saying that you can't trust the Bible. I'm saying that people are human. They make mistakes. Because as we've noted so often when we look at quote-unquote contradictions in the Bible or errors, they're not anything that impact the theological message. The theological message and themes have been kept intact, and that is crazy that we have so much consistency across the board. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not saying don't trust your Bible. I'm not saying it's full of horrible mistakes. I'm saying sometimes, you know, people mess up when they write, and you can look at it and go, okay, whatever. You know, it's, it, if you have a good friend who writes you a letter, and they accidentally write the wrong word. Especially with autocorrect, most of, have, most of us have gotten really good at going, that's not what they meant. Right. Why? Because we know them. We know what they intended. We know their hearts. We know the, the basic message that they're trying to send us. And, and so we can actually read through those mistakes to get to the intent. 
it's no different with the Bible. And so it shouldn't scare us when we have these kinds of discrepancies because it's not some malicious, oh my gosh, there's a conspiracy. People are trying to undermine, you know, the word of God. That's not what it is. It's just acknowledging what's actually happening. So did that yeah, speak I think to your so. concern? No, well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't my concern. It was just to alleviate other people's concerns. I hope, I hope it made sense. But yeah, no, I, I like what, what Heiser says, you know, too many, too many people were born with what he calls the X-Files uh, view of inspiration, uh, where mm-hmm. it's, you know, they went into this like auto writing phase and then they yeah. came out of it and looked at it and said, whoa, that's good. Did I write that? <laughs> you know, just kind of, uh, it all came down perfectly. And it, and, it, and it has kind of shot us in the foot that there are so many, uh, there are so many people who, who, number one, believe that, and number two, believe a lot of bad ideas that come out of that. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's, um, there, there were lots of things that I was taught growing up in, uh, in church that turned out to be false. I mean, just, mm-hmm. just completely fabricated about how, uh, about the manuscripts that we do have and how mm-hmm. in all the manuscripts we have, there's, there's, you know, no contradictions, like the, no, no, no contradictions. There's no variations. There's in it. And this is how we know it's God's word because it's so perfectly preserved. And, and, um, yeah, that's, it just turned out that that's not true, even in the manuscript data that we have. Well, yeah. And the thing is, the, the, the mistakes that we have are like this one here and the, or the contradictions. They, they're, they're like what we have here. It's a difference in numbers. Does it change the meat of the story any? Right. I mean, absolutely not. And I, we've talked about before, a lot of times the manuscripts are very, very close and the, the variances are as slight as a breath mark or an accent mark. And so it, it's, they are big differences. And I actually think that it provides more um, integrity to, to the transmission because it shows you that people are actually doing this. There wasn't like one central location where uh, you know, some overseer and proofreaders went through and went, mm, you, you strayed from the party line. Now we're going to have to off with your head. You can't work for us anymore. You know, this isn't some kind of um, conspiracy that's been propagated by some centralized organization. Mm-hmm. It, it was a very organic kind of uh, event that that grew and flourished in all these different little subcultures and and villages and in homes and people were very much a part of the process and in all kinds of people and you know that's one of the things that really uh shocks me whenever I, I i think about it when you think about all the different ethnic and cultural groups around the mediterranean and how all of these people agreed this is a holy book and this is how it needs to be preserved that in and of itself is pretty miraculous mm-hmm. because, I mean, you put a group of people together at a bar, they can't decide what kind of beer to put in the pitcher. I mean, and so if you could get this many people to agree on these books, I yeah. mean, that's well, pretty to, to make it more relatable, you get a group of Baptists in a room and they can't agree on the color of carpet. I mean, we... <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. well, now we're speaking to all of our audience. <laughs> there, all things to all people. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, but you know, but what I really love about this particular example is no one fixed the contradiction. It would have been so easy for at any point in time for a scribe to say, these don't match up. And then to make that judgment call and say, which numbers do I keep? Do I change Chronicles to match Samuel? Do I change Samuel to, to match Chronicles? So actually this even provides more credibility to the text because nobody bothered to do that. If they had really wanted to to kind of cover up that there might be mistakes, why didn't someone do that? Sure. Why why didn't Zondervan? I mean, come on. Everybody reads 20 different um uh Bibles from Zondervan and they all have this contradiction. So right here, this shows you the credibility and the veracity of those people who have transmitted this text to us. And I, I think it actually makes everything more trustworthy. So verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. 
And so once again, the writer leaves us in the dark. What is David's sin? Is it the fact he took the census? Is it how he took the census? Or maybe it's why he took the census. Now, David leaves no doubt that he believes this guilt is all his, despite the fact it was incited by God. And so we're going to talk some more about this. But it's interesting that David's confession is even more emphatic than his confession with Bathsheba. And he said, I've sinned with Bathsheba, but he did not say, I, I sinned greatly. Uh, he, he, he has said he's exceeded, uh, he's sinned exceedingly. I mean, he's very, very emphatic that this is worse than what he did with Bathsheba. And the other thing that's interesting is he did not have to be told he sinned. There's no prophet coming to him to say, hey, you know, David, you're the man. It, he, he comes to it in his own realization, however it's revealed to him between him and God. He, he understands that this was a mistake and he shouldn't have done it. And he, he falls on his sword with no prompting, pretty much. So, and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. Verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now, this time, even though, sorry guys, that's a puppy in the background. Uh, even though the prophet doesn't come and say, you're the man, the prophet comes to tell David the consequences of, of his sin. And so the guy that shows up here, his name is Gad. We first met him back in 1 Samuel 22.5. And this is when David had fled from Saul. He had fled from Saul. He'd gone to Nob. He'd gotten the showbread. He'd gotten the sword of Goliath. He'd taken his family, moved them to Moab. He, they were hanging out there. And Gad came to him and says, no, you cannot stay here. You're going to have to come back to Judah. You've got to be in Israel doing your part, doing what you need to be doing. But you can't hide here. Now, Nathan is still around. Don't, not just you. The, the prophet Nathan is still around, and we don't know exactly why Gad is chosen as opposed to Nathan. I have some theories, and, I, and we're going to talk about those, but I, I think the big reason is Nathan is too much of the court structure at this point. I, I think he's too much, in, he's involved too much in the politics and the goings on within the royal household, and we're really going to see that with Saul. And, at, uh, I'm sorry, Solomon at David's death, that Nathan's right in the thick of it. Gad is the outsider. He's not involved in anything that's happening within the, the palace as far as we know. We just know that he, has, he is someone David trusts, but he doesn't seem to have that same level of, of involvement that Nathan does. Now, the um, other thing that we see is that Nathan and Gad have two overlapping but distinct roles. Nathan the prophet or the Navi is never called a seer. Not once in the scripture is that his designation. So we have Gad who is a seer and Nathan who is a prophet. And now what the, the thing is, every seer that we encounter in the Bible is a prophet. Every prophet we encounter in the Bible isn't necessarily a seer. So while seeing is part of the prophetic role, it does not necessarily, it's not necessarily required to be a prophet. And uh, probably our most famous seer we started the book with, that is Samuel himself. He is described as a prophet and a seer. And so um, we see this distinction with, between Nathan and Gad most clearly in 2 Chronicles 29, 25. And it says, and he stationed the Levites in his home, in the home of the, sorry, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, and according to the commandment of David, and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. So even in Chronicles, we, we see that division between seer and prophet, mm -hmm. even that then it brings them back together and 
puts them both under that umbrella of a prophet. And now the, the capacity for seeing into the spiritual realm and to witness what is happening there is going to play a big part in what's coming up in the story. So I also think that plays into why Gad had to be the one to bring the, the, the message to David. We're supposed to be prepared for what's getting ready to happen. And the idea that seeing what's going on, not just hearing from God, but actually looking into the spiritual realm, seeing what's happening with the angels, demons, you know, what's going on, it is something that's necessary for the leadership of Israel in order to fulfill their proper function, or at least be influenced by someone who can see this. And we're going to find, as we go through kings, that Israel's kings often do have at least one seer in their court in order to, to help them understand what's going on. And it's not just through kind of you know, verbal or written messages. It is recounting what's happening in the heavenly courts. So um, Gad's message is, is kind of interesting. Uh, we have three threes. Uh, we have three years of famine. And, you know, we got to remember back in chapter 21, David had just gone through three years of famine. Mm-hmm. And that was because of Saul's sin against the, the Gibeonites. Then we have uh, three months of fleeing from his enemies. David spent most of his life on the road fleeing from his enemies. And so this, these two things David has experienced in his time. These are not things that are unfamiliar to David. And then we have three days of pestilence. Um, this is the only thing David hasn't encountered yet. This is the only thing that David himself is not intimately familiar with. And now the sages are trying to make sense of this, what's going on. And, and you got to remember back to when we started chapter 24. There is. This is all happening because God is angry with the people of Israel, not David. Okay, this is not, this did not happen because David had messed up to begin with. Now, the situation became that David obviously did because that's what the scripture says. But at the very beginning, this is judgment against the people, not David himself. And so the sages connect this back to the three times that Israel failed to recognize David as their proper king. And so the first one would be Ishbosheth, Saul's son, whenever they accepted him as king. The, the second one would be, I think I started out with the second one. Anyway, started out with Ishbosheth. And then it went to Absalom whenever uh, Absalom rebelled against David and the people accepted him as king. And then finally, Shiva's uh, rebellion, where the people said, let us rule ourselves. You know, let us go back to our own tents and have our own... Uh, our own rule, just like they did back in the time of Judges. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the sages say, hey, God was mad at Israel. The scripture isn't that clear. Um, I think there's a little bit of validity there, or could possibly be some validity there. So we're going to have to, um, I think we need to leave the door open, but I don't think we can, you know, say this is definitely it. Right. Now, yeah. <laughs> so now, I should note that in Chronicles, the famine is not three years. Uh, Gad says it'll be seven years. And um, there is a proposed solution for this contradiction. Um, It made a little more sense than some of the others, which is basically there had been three years of famine. And then if there's three more years of famine, now we're at six years. And then if you add a year for everything to recover and actually be able to harvest crops, now you're at seven um, you know, I think the big thing is let's just chalk it up to scribal error and go on. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we just get a little too um, creative in solving what we think are problems. So no, I get it. It and it, it it's well, like we we said with the um, well, we were talking about you know the inspiration, the the X Files view of inspiration. And I know we've mentioned it several times, but I think it's one of those things that just, it bears repeating that, mm-hmm. and, and again, I'm kind of, uh, you know, following Heiser on some of this, and I, you, I know you said you experienced some of this when you got to seminary, but mm-hmm. he was talking about, you know, we, we raise people with this X-Files view of inspiration, and then when they get to uh, Bible college and they take some basic Bible classes and they, they realize that everything's not as they were told it should, yeah. they, as it was when they grew up. They, they don't have, they've not been given the, the mental 
faculties or the imagination to, and I use imagination as the ability to, to, to kind of bridge gaps mm-hmm. um, in their mind to, to think that things could be another way and the universe could operate differently. Well, and, and now they can't trust the Bible. They can't trust their parents who told them this. They can't trust their pastors, their Sunday school mm-hmm. teachers, the church at large. Now where are they going to turn? I, I mean, and, and I did. I watched several um, classmates that just kind of just fall apart. And I watched their faith implode because they were confronted with things that they should have been told the truth about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so if, we, you know, if we're honest, then we don't have to apologize. And, and you know, if God was so worried about these contradictions and he thought that this was going to destroy someone's faith, then do you think he would have left these things in there? Right. I, I mean, we have to trust God with the preservation of his word. And so basically when we try to defend him from what he has done, we're saying that we're more powerful and smarter than God and that you know, we don't need to make that mistake. Right. Uh, we've already, you know, we have accounts of people who have, and beings that have made that mistake. It never ends well. So <laughs> if God says, hey, this is, this is fine with me, I'm not going to do some supernatural, you know, bite out and type in the right thing, then let's be okay with that because he could do that if he wanted to. So I, I just, sometimes you just got to trust God. You got to have a little faith. Imagine that. <laughs> so verse 14. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, and for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So notice David doesn't pick, or at least he doesn't seem to pick. Uh, he certainly disqualifies being chased because, you know, that'd be chased by men. Um, and we're given a tiny clue as to what David is choosing here. and. He chooses to fall into the hand of God. Okay, so that's clue number one. And clue number two is this word, this very interesting word, Deborah, which is translated here as pestilence. We find that this word pestilence is linked back to Exodus 9.15, and this is God speaking. He says, for now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And this is the plague of hail in the in the uh, time of Egypt, those 10 plagues. Okay. So we have that connection between God's hand and we have pestilence, both combined here and back there in Exodus. And that's the main spots where you find those two terms linked. So we're going to keep going. Um, so David said to, so, so the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from morning and the appointed time, and there died people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. So just like Joab was told to go from Dan to Beersheba, that's what David told Joab to do. God does the same thing. He wipes out 70,000. And it says the appointed time. Now, this is a really big question because God had said three full days. And on the surface, that seems like the correct idea and understanding of how long this is going to last. Mm -hmm. But there's reason to think that this was shortened. And we're going to see what those reasons are as we move forward. But, um, to see it, we're actually going to have to look at uh, the accounts here and in Chronicles. And it says, um, and the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it. And the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, it is enough now. Stay your hand or literally unclench your fist, is what the Hebrew says. So um, this is our second clue that at the time may have been shortened because why the, the, war, the Lord relented. This is the same word nakam. We looked at it uh, whenever God said, I have repented of making Saul the king. Mm-hmm. And some translations will say regretted. You know, he changed his mind. It's also the same word that we find in Genesis whenever uh, we have the flood, when God repented of making humanity. And so... Um, there's an implication or this idea that, you know, of changing course, uh, of not carrying out the original assignment, that there's some reason to, to make a change. Now, the, the third clue we have is the angel who's working destruction. He is working destruction according to the command of the Lord. And the command seems to include 
a direct attack on Jerusalem. That's where this guy's heading. He's saying, hey, I'm supposed to be killing people. I'm heading to Jerusalem. And it seems like God puts a halt to it at the last possible second and says, mm, we're, we're going to leave Israel alone. We're mm-hmm. going to leave, the, I'm sorry, Jerusalem alone. So First Chronicles 21 through 15 through 16. So this is the same, same story. And here's what it says. And it says, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. So just like I just said, you know, it seems like Jerusalem was part of that direct assignment. Here in Chronicles, we have that confirmed. And God had sent the city to Jerusalem. And then God says, no, wait, we're not going to do that. Now, that's going to mess with some people's theology right there. Because God doesn't change his mind. Well, where do we get that idea? I still haven't figured out where we get that idea because there are so many times in the Old Testament where God absolutely does change his mind. And you know why he changes his mind? Because people repent, people pray, you know, this Mm -hmm. is, this is not, you know, Moses argued with God and got God to change his mind. That's clear in the scripture. And so when we start saying God never changes minds, we are actually contradicting scripture. And we need to stop acting like God is locked into some kind of game plan. Hey, he's sovereign, which I mean, which is funny because it's usually the argument about why God can't change his mind is because he's sovereign. Sovereign doesn't mean you can't do anything. Sovereign means you can do anything, including change your mind. Right. So a little bit of a rant there. Um, Sorry. I'm with you. Yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding in the way that that God's presented by... By by people who are are just hard determinist, and mm-hmm. and everything's scripted from the beginning. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It said God declares the end from the beginning. So just despite whatever happens, He's still going to win. That doesn't mean He scripted everything between here and there. Yeah, and, and you know He's invited us to participate. So okay, continuing verse fifteen, it says, "But he, as He was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and relented that Nakam, that same word we were talking about earlier, from calamity." And he said to the angel, it is enough, stay your hand. And the angel was standing by the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So then verse 16 says, David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. And in his hand, a sword draw stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. So that detail there, that, that David and the elders they're clothed in sackcloth, a sign of mourning, a sign of grieving. Uh, we got to remember back in the, the story in 21, uh, the, uh, Saul's concubine had been what? Clothed in sackcloth that she mm-hmm. built her tent under. So we got that connection there. But it's not in Samuel. We don't have that little detail in Samuel. It's only in Chronicles. And the king and the elders. So it's not just David. It, it's all of Jerusalem it is actually uh, joining the king in this lament. And this is why God is changing his mind. So Second Samuel twenty four sixteen ends with the detail. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranua, the Jebusite. So we have two important details in the end of this sentence um, or in this this um, account, one, the angel of the Lord is working destruction among the people. The angel of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about this before. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is not um, just some random angel. This is a very specific angel. This is the angel who goes before the people in the wilderness, whose name, God says, I put my name in him. This is the angel that appears before Joshua. This is the angel that appeared at the burning bush. We talked about this with Samson, how the angel of the Lord shows up and he's, he's talking to Samson's mother. And you've got that conflation of language between Yahweh and Elohim. And it, the two are one, but the two are distinct. We see that at the burning bush. You can really get into this so deep to prove this. And I'm not going to take time to do it. Heiser's got writing on it. Um, several other people, the names just went out of my head. I just saw a book uh, in the Divine Council Worldview Facebook group uh, that somebody was had put out there talking about this, and I cannot remember his name. But over and over again, scholarship, careful reading of the Bible, 
bears out the idea that the angel of the Lord is this very specific representation or embodiment of God that is still spiritual, not human embodied, but embodied in such a way that humanity can interact and perceive his presence. Mm -hmm. So, um, so this is who is working destruction on Jerusalem. It's God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, we, and we even we even see that in Exodus as well. Um, I'm not sure if you mentioned that. I was I got distracted briefly, but that when when you look when you look at that, God says He'll go down and and take judgment on the gods mm-hmm. of Egypt when it comes to that final plague. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's. Yeah. God, that, not not yeah. this angel of death who we get to say, oh, that's the bad guy God used. This is God saying, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's, you know, and we're going to talk about that too, because we're going to get into uh, some different uh, details that the story is going to bring out that have to deal with that event specifically. It also says that he was by the threshing floor of Aranua, the Jebusite, now, the name in Chronicles, once again, this is a different name. Oh, my goodness, we're going to die because there's a contradiction. Um, Alter offers a solution, and, you know, I like this solution because it's not a far-fetched solution. I don't think he's working too hard. He says one is the Hebrew version of the name, mm-hmm. and one is the Jebusite version of the name. Yeah. Well, we see, you know, we see that all the time. We see names change. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not uncommon. Well, how many of us have friends from different countries, um, and they've got a name that, you know, us Americans just really can't get our mouths around to, to spit out. Uh, you know, it's just they're too difficult for whatever reason, and so uh, they adopt a name that fits better for Americans to actually speak and not butcher in such a horrible way. And you know, I had a a ton of foreign students when I talked uh, at at the local college here and almost every one of them had an English name because they knew that everybody was just going to ruin their, their, na- their natural uh, birth name. That's what I'm trying to say. The name in their, na- their native language. Right. So yeah, not a foreign concept, not something that we're unfamiliar with. At least you shouldn't be unfamiliar with if you know people um, outside those you just grew up with. Um, Another solution, and we've also seen this before in, in scripture, is that one of these is his name, and one of these is his title as king. And so that, you know, we, we've seen that with uh, Abimelech. Was Abimelech the name of the guy, or is Abimelech the title of the king? And, you know, talked about the debate there. We've looked at this before. Very common. So, again, not a huge issue. Um, you know, anything we have like a plausible reason for isn't a big issue in my mind. Uh, it, we got a very convenient explanation here. And the, the, the idea that this is the title for the king actually is supported in uh, verse 23. We'll talk about this more when we get there. Verse 17, and David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was uh, striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. So this is a watershed moment for David. Uh, Remember, God was not angry with David at the beginning. And I know I keep repeating that, but so many people think that God was mad at David. And that's where we started at. And that's kind of just been something that's ingrained into us almost culturally. Um, But David was the one who was incited to take the census. But there's, you know, there's no command. We talked about that. So once again, what is the sin that David is confessing to? I mean, nothing we've been presented seems to be dire enough up to this point to to warrant this kind of reaction from God. Um, But then there's also another interesting question. Why is David absolving the people of their sin? Because God was angry with the people. Why is he saying, hey, I will take the blame for this. Place the guilt directly on my shoulders. Don't, Don't hurt them. Don't punish them. Let it be me. And so, you know, and why would he ask that God let his hand be against David's house? Now, the thing about this, I think, is really helpful to remember. And I think this helps us understand why the book of Samuel has some of the stories it has. This is David 
who could not out of you know some kind of misbegotten compassion could not punish Amnon he couldn't take a stand when Absalom died the Absalom who had run him out of Jerusalem tried to take the kingship away from him the Absalom who had raped 10 of David's wives concubines David grieved he grieved so profoundly that he couldn't even remember how to comport himself as a king. Joab had to, to take it upon himself to tell David to get it together. And so now David's saying, hey, don't just, don't just blame me. Here's my sons. Here's my daughters. Here's mm-hmm. my house. This is so out of character with the David we have known up to this point. And in this moment, I, I think this is really the key. In this moment, David actually becomes, at least in, in, in part, the embodiment of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's at this moment David fulfills the role that he was been given. Everything else up to this point tells you why this was such a huge sacrifice for David to actually even utter these words. Because if we hadn't realized what his family meant to him, what having the kingship, what he was willing to do to hang on to that throne, you know, everything up to, to this point in his life has been about holding on to that throne, making sure there's an heir, there's a succession within his family. And now, I mean, go back to the conversation he has with God. I mean, whenever God made that covenant with David before the ark, back was it in 2 Samuel 7, you know, he even bargained with God to get more mm-hmm. because he wanted this so badly. And in this moment, when he finally realizes the people are hurting, the people are dying, he actually says, you know what? I can give it all up. If you will make the, make the death stop, make the pain stop, I will give it all up because that's what, that's what a king does. That's what the king of Israel does. And so we see David fulfilling Hannah's prophecy and you know, he's surrendering all he's to, he held dear, and he's offering himself in the place of the people. And this is huge, because Saul would have never done this. I mean, you look at Saul and who he was. Saul couldn't even begin to wrap his mind around this, this concept. And the one time he did offer to give up his son, we, we had reason to believe it wasn't giving up his son and the idea of, Oh, let me offer Jonathan up to to stop God's hand. It's no, I'm going to offer Jonathan up because he's getting too popular with the people, and I can't let him threaten my my reign like this. What what did David do when his son rose up and became popular with the people? David walked away. So we have this full reversal of Saul's um, behavior and David's behavior, and, and so it's. This is going to play a huge part because, I mean, I think anybody who's familiar with the gospel can already see the parallels that we're drawing here, where the king is willing to to give up everything he has, give up his own son, give up his family in order to save everyone else who is under his reign. So we don't have to have a, a long stretch of the imagination to see how this foreshadows what Jesus and God do on the cross. So... Verse 18, and God came that day to David and said to him, go raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranua, the Jebusite. So this is the place the plague stopped. God says, I want you to put an altar right here where the plague ends, where I said to, to, to hold things off. In First Chronicles in 21, it's the angel of the Lord who specifically commands Gad to take this message to David. So uh, again, you see that blurring of of lines. Does God speak this directly to to David, or did God speak to Gad, and then Gad delivered God's words? We we don't know because really, the end result is the same. And so, with the end result being the same, we can be okay with that. Now, uh, verse nineteen. So David went up at the God's word as the Lord commanded. And we see this, this blending of the angel of the Lord, like I was talking about. And so that is, this verse is pretty much uh, identical in Chronicles and Samuel. But Samuel omits verse 20 that's in, in Chronicles. And it says, Ornan was, at the thre- was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were 
were with him hid themselves. So it was at this place that the um that the the presence of God and the spiritual realm is almost like leaking through into the physical realm. So not just Gad the seer is seeing what's happening here. Mm-hmm. David is seeing it. This Jebusite who's not even an Israelite, he's seeing it. His sons are seeing it. And, and this this event it isn't just happening in in some kind of symbolic way it it's happening with real life implications and real life um real life consequences i it's just it's really interesting to me because it's not this often that you actually see the um the um spiritual leak over in such a profound way that everybody can witness it. So verse, um, let's see where we at. Verse 20. And when Aaron looked down and saw the king and his servants coming towards them, and Aaron came out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. So, you know, he, he is relieved. He actually sees David as coming to, to stop the what's happening here. He sees the presence of David as a sign that the, the plague and the pestilence that has been heading his way and kind of sweeping through the country in his direction is going to, to come to an end. Why? Because the king is present. And so I think that was a really interesting detail because once again, we get all of that foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so Aranua said, why has my Lord, the King come to his servant? And David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. So David is coming to this Jebusite, which is really interesting. One, that there is a Jebusite living in, you know, the outskirts or the, in within Jerusalem, some part of Jerusalem itself, because what were the children of Israel supposed to do when they went into Canaan? They're supposed to drive them out. And so we've had the conquest of Canaan. The tribes have received their allotment. We have had, um, you know, hundreds of years passed. And then David has conquered the city of Jerusalem. Absalom has conquered the city of Jerusalem. Both times, these guys are going to make it the capital city of Israel. And yet they've left the Jebusites as part of the inhabitants of the city. So we know that the the Canaanites are still living in the country. I mean, we also saw that before with the Gibeonites in chapter 21 with Saul and his actions against them. So it it seems really odd when you think about it, because, you know, we're always told, oh, you know, they just went into Canaan and they killed everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously they didn't. I mean, otherwise, why do we have this guy right here? So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a misnomer uh, to to think that this was this huge genocide where everyone just got put to death. And I think we need to actually pay attention to what the Bible says and not necessarily to uh, what's convenient for us to believe. So um, verse 22, the Aranua said to David, let my Lord, the king, take and offer what seems to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. Now, this guy says, you know, hey, I, I'm I'm not going to sell it to you. Here it is. You, you can have it. And not only can you have it, here is the oxen for, for a sacrifice. You can have all the equipment for the, for the wood so you can burn the oxen as an offering. I see some really strong parallels of when uh, Saul received the news uh, after he was anointed king. Remember, he'd gone home, and whenever he'd gone home, he got word that Jabesh Gilead had um, had been attacked. That's First uh, Samuel eleven. Let's see, read verse. Let me just read this here in verse five. It says, "Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping?'" So they told the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took the yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory. So we're also going to find another parallel going forward when we get to the story of uh, Eli and Elisha, when Elijah calls calls Elisha 
Uh, yeah, love those two names together. And what does he do when he gets called? Well, he kills the, the oxen and he uses the equipment to to offer them up as a sacrifice. And so the this Jebusite actually has the correct response. He has a response that is fitting both historically and will continue to to play out in the future. That when you're approached by the king, you just turn it all over. You you don't hang on to any of it. Right. And so uh, there's some inter- like I said some interesting parallels which we aren't going to get into today because we are running out of time. Well, let's finish up the story. And it says all this, O king, uh, Aranahu gives to the king. So I want to stop right there because the ESV has an interesting translation. They put some some punctuation in here that makes it read as if Aranahu is saying, all this, O King David, I will give, you know, uh, Aranahu gives to you. Okay, so number one, um, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew does not have punctuation. So anytime we add punctuation to a Hebrew text, we're making some presumptions, um, usually with good reason. Um, you know, we need the punctuation in English to, to make sense. But traditionally, this has been read as saying, all this, O king, uh, sorry, all this, Aranahu the king gives to the king. So it's a gift from one king to another. It's the transfer of worldly goods to the divinely appointed Messiah. Okay. And it's this surrender. And so, again, a great parallel of what's getting ready to happen when we get into the Gospels. Um, So I think the ESV, you know, the ESV, I think they're trying to to make it make sense to the readers. The idea of a Jebusite king is kind of weird. But what's interesting is the Masoretic text and the rabbinic readings of this particular passage all credit him as being a king. They don't try to take away from that. And you would think that if they're, you're wanting to elevate David and if you're wanting to make sure that you know, he is the king of Jerusalem, why would you even acknowledge that there might be a Jebusite king still residing within Jerusalem? Uh, that doesn't even make sense. So, you, you know, it, to me, it's the harder reading to, to say that there is a Jebusite king within this uh, city, which that's a rule in translation work, by the way. You always take the harder reading, the one that makes you work a little bit more for the meaning and the substance. That's the one you go with, because if it reads too smoothly or too easily, that's when there's an indication that maybe a scribe has said, hey, let me just smooth this out for you. Let me Mm -hmm. help this make sense. And uh, we actually have a situation in um, John, and I can't remember the chapter right now where a scribe said, hey, this doesn't make sense. Let me make this help you make this make sense. And he added something in, and we know he added it in because the oldest texts don't have it. And then archaeologist has said, this couldn't possibly be it. So we're going to talk about that because it's changed the meaning of the story. And what's interesting to me is that has been um, clearly demonstrated that we have this, this scribal edition and how we can see where the change impacts and how it w- was uh, included has been outed, if you will. So I think w- that's another reason we can depend on on the Bible is because when we do have those things that kind of mess with the meaning, they they're they're glaring. They're they're really obvious. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, okay. And Aranuha said to the king, "May the Lord your God accept you." So this is he's still talking to David. Verse 24, but the king said to Aranuha, no, I will buy, from, buy it from you for a price. I will, not offer a burnt offering, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David brought the, thr- the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So those of you who know your story of a- Abraham, you're already going, I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, when Abraham brought, bought the uh, the tomb for Sarah. Exactly. Exactly. And so what we have is not the, the, it's the, the, the next step in the picture, because the idea isn't about violent conquest. The idea was never supposed to be about violent conquest of the land. It was supposed to be about purchasing, redeeming the land, bringing it back into the ownership of God's people. And here David does the same thing. He doesn't go and kill this guy and say, hey, you know, I wanted this. I mean, that's what, that's what 
Ahab does. David says, no, I want this, and God has commanded me to buy it. The guy's willing to sell, and David says, you know, here, here's a fair market value for it. I'm going to pay what it's going to take to, to bring it back into my ownership or into the ownership of the God I represent as king. Mm-hmm. And that was exactly what Abraham was doing. And so the idea that the, this is all about violent conquest it is, yes, it happened, but you've got to remember those people that, the, that were displaced in the Canaanite conquest, they were not normally people who had huge cities. There were a few, but overall we're talking nomadic. And they, they could have left. They could have converted. We've seen examples of that. They're, they were the ones who chose to stay and fight to keep Israel out. So there's some really, um, and we're going to, you know, we, we talked about that some in the past. But here we see a definite example of how it should work out. And it's working out this way specifically in a piece of land that uh, we're going to learn becomes the, the location for the temple. So verse 25, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea, to the plea for the land and the plague was averted in Israel. So the plague is averted when David buys the land, he burns the, builds the altar, burns the offering, and God says, hey, we're good. This is, this is done. So um, I think probably that would be a good place to to kind of start to wrap up because what we're doing is we're going to go back and we're going to look at how this plays off that story in first Samuel sorry in second Samuel 21 mm-hmm. where the the famine ends and why it ends and we're going to talk about the similarities and differences but there's also two other major stories that these two accounts play off of and I think it would be good. We're going to take some time to look at how these two stories, I mean, we've obviously seen there's more t- than two, but specifically these two stories. One is actually the Exodus, and the other is um, the Akedo, or the binding of Isaac. Both these stories play into the events that happen here. So once again, um, we have this 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 thing that happens in Samuel where all of these threads come together and they, they play together. And if you're trying to follow the, the message and intent, you have to pick up the individual threads and then be able to see the indiv- individual threads in the wo- woven tapestry, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, you know, it, it's not something that you can just go, oh, here's the story. I mean, yeah, you can, but you're going to miss the bigger, more interesting part of the story, I think, when you do that. So, um, yeah, just really hope I can put that together so it all makes sense, because that's the hard part. I see it here, but trying to translate it in a way that mm-hmm. um, isn't confusing. Uh, I totally daunting. understand. Yeah, there's a, it's getting the words put together in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. I, that's how I, I feel. I my dry like... erase board. <laughs> Well, let's say that's how I feel whenever I do a lot of uh, a lot of writing. It's like I know how I want to say it, and I know a few ways that I could say it if I were speaking that would make more sense. Mm-hmm. But it, it it relies on a lot on inflection. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyhow, so yeah, well, uh, yeah. Well, that seems like yeah. Let's go ahead and pause there, and then t- uh, tomorrow, no, next week, <laughs> um, we'll try to bring it all together in a and. <laughs> See how it all on top. Hope, hopefully it all fits uh, <laughs> as well as you say. We're 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 counting on you, Emily. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, well, everyone, thanks for joining us, and uh, hopefully you had a good time. And if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on the Raven Creek website, Raven Creek, Raven Creek SC dot com is where you can find that. If I can speak, and uh, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, be part of the conversation. Um, In the meantime, uh, we will see you uh, next week. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.
This is the Open Wallet Podcast, an exploration of personal finance. I'm Katie, a numbers nerd. And I'm Joe, a 40-year-old punk rocker. And And we're we're married. married. We're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with, like... How do I read my pay stub? How do I dress better on a budget? How do I start an emergency fund? What goes into buying a house? And lots more. So join us on Open Wallet Podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts.